0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to this month's live stream. It is my honor and privilege to be joining you from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank, headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. Uh, Let me say that we are deeply saddened by the violent conflicts taking place at this time in the world. And we have the task and, and indeed the honor to discuss with you how we think the world is working and how that relates to markets. Of course, we trust that world leaders are having other conversations about how the world should be working. Uh, today, I am joined by a cavalcade of UBS stars uh, to discuss a variety of topics. So, so let's get into it. And Michael, we wanna start with you as the main story this week has been the Israel Hamas war. Can you? give us an update on the situation.
1: Yes, thanks Mark and, and 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 yes indeed I think the war in the near east has been the the key story. And if we look at the sort of the complexity and the scale of the ground operations that the Israeli army seems to be preparing I'm afraid it will remain a um, a key topic for several weeks if if not months. Now in terms of key developments um, I think I can highlight three things. So first The the fighting in Israel continues with uh, Israel targeting Gaza through airstrikes, and they have killed uh, thousands of people, many children, uh, unfortunately, civilians. They have deprived one million people uh, out of their homes, and um, Israel has also imposed uh, very strict blockades, including food items, water, energy, and and medical supplies, and uh, you know the u n and other um, organizations have warned against the um you know the growing risk of a humanitarian crisis. and at the same time, the attacks on Israel continue not only out of Gaza but also out of Lebanon through hezbollah and um, you know that has sort of led to a situation where the Israeli army is also forced to deploy uh, personal and 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 military equipment in in the north. now, in terms of um,
0: I guess I guess we lost uh, Michael there. So, but for, uh, Michael, if you get back, uh, please jump in. But maybe I can finish. Uh, I think you know. A key concern for us is understanding: uh, will this conflict widen beyond the, the current borders? As as I think Michael was alluding mm-hmm. to, um, you know, will will others like Hezbollah? take advantage of this situation. Uh, Other, you know, will the regional conflict escalate? And will that uh, lead us to something like we've seen, uh, say, around the Yom Kippur War, where oil becomes, uh, that has been a key mechanism in the past, will that uh, become even more strategic of an asset in the near future? Uh, And as you all know, we've been overweight uh, energy equities and, and played downside on oil uh, for some time, in part because of uh, the geopolitical situation. And uh, so maybe, maybe we'll just, uh, oh, Michael, you're back. Uh, I'm, yeah. so,
1: I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I we...
0: just talked, that's okay. I just talked about potential for wider conflict and the implications for oil as a, as a key mechanism here.
1: It's 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 oil. Thank you, Mark. It's it's oil and and to a lesser extent gold. But I'm sure Dominic will will explain that in in great detail when we when we talk about um, uh, you know commodities, ethics uh, as, as as possible ways to hedge against the the risk. So I think the key point really is that you know we we see this this crisis escalating on the ground, but at the same time there is huge efforts. You know among among others, the the US is 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 doing a great job. In you know a containing the crisis from from spreading across the region and b trying to avoid avoid a humanitarian disaster in Gaza we heard Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken announcing that President Biden himself will will fly to Israel tomorrow so you know huge trip on very short notice on, on under underscoring underpinning the relevance of this. And he will meet Netanyahu and, and, you know, develop a plan to also avoid, you know, hopefully some humanitarian aid getting into Gaza, helping the civilians. And the Arab leaders are, are very much doing, doing the same. You know, there's a conference in, in Egypt on Saturday uh, where they will sit together, hopefully sort of finding ways to coordinate and, and, and find solution and again help to avoid the, the from from spreading. But as we see this evolving, and, and there's a risk that you know the the broadcasting out of Gaza will will get you know nasty. There is a risk of sentiment toward toward Israel to sour, which can potentially attract other actors to take to take advantage of this. So that 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 is a is a clear risk uh, for an escalation. But, but but again, so far not our our base case. If if time still allows, maybe just one word on, on local assets. Uh, we've seen, you know, the shekel being mainly affected and, you know, the near-term outlook is toward further weakness uh, as this conflict evolves. But, you know, we look at Israeli assets as ultimately fundamentally very sound. So, you know, eventually they will recover, but near-term, clearly, risks tilted to the downside. If we take a step back and and look at, at the markets more broadly in the regions, and I'm thinking mainly about the GCC here, uh, so far, almost non-impact. Um, we would probably really see an escalation, potentially even including a direct confrontation between Israel and Iran, for some noticeable spillover to to the GCC market, which I'd say at the end of the day also is uh, is encouraging.
0: Yeah. So so maybe just to summarize, I think uh, you know we're we're looking at. All of the different implications here, uh, in terms of the region and uh, you know and geo geostrategically and the refugee situation and the commodity situation, at this time, uh, you know it's difficult to project that this is going to escalate uh, you know within beyond kind of the the regional conflict that it is. Uh, and, you know, and the markets are, are not pricing that. And so while we believe there are mechanisms to hedge uh, a, a, something of a wider conflict, you know, through oil or gold, uh, it's, it's kind of wait and see. And we certainly, as Michael alluded to, take some heart for the fact that the U.S. is trying very hard to contain the crisis by being on the ground. And it's, uh, you know, it's no insignificant step for the for the president of the United States to visit in in person so with with that uh we will move on to what would be probably an enormous headline grabbing story it still sort of is uh were it not for this uh israel hamas war which is what is going on with u.s treasury yields and uh you know fred we've talked a lot about this and what and what are the drivers and and how should we invest so Please uh, enlighten us.
2: Yeah, sure, thanks Mark. So so I guess there is a link the the evolving situation in the Middle East has had an influence in the last two weeks on treasury yields, particularly given treasury yields are still considered a safe haven asset. but I think the bigger the bigger story, and I guess what you're alluding to, Mark, is the headlines around are the bond vigilantes back? Uh, is the U.S. fiscal situation unsustainable, and I think that is having an influence on bond yields to a certain extent. Uh, there's no doubt that the U.S. Uh, amount of the the debt that the U.S. has issued has doubled in the last ten years, and the fiscal deficit continues to widen. And we have a situation where the Fed is actively trying to tighten policy and is reducing their balance sheets or reducing uh, their holdings of treasuries. So there's a question around this supply demand imbalance and whether all this supply coming to the market can be absorbed by private investors. But I think ultimately um, the bigger driver of bond yields, particularly in the US uh, this year, has really been due to the US economic resilience. Uh, Many people, ourselves included, uh, maybe underestimated, you know, the strength of the US economy this year, particularly the propensity for US consumers to continue to to spend, you know, the pent-up demand for services coming out of the pandemic, and of course fiscal policy that has been quite supportive for investment. So um, we think that the main driver of yields, particularly in the third quarter, was this recalibration of policy rate cut expectations from the fed up until q2 q3 there was an expectation that the fed was pretty close to being done and then would start cutting rates aggressively the strength of the u.s economy has basically recalibrated those expectations and the fed has also basically reiterated that it's not yet mission accomplished on inflation. The job's not done. They want to keep the optionality to keep policy restrictive. And rather than the Fed telling us that they're going to continue to hike rates, it's more around how long they're going to keep the policy rates up here at these restrictive levels. And that's essentially what you can see in the, the charts in front of you. Most of the moves, particularly in Q3, happened on the real yield side. So that is essentially telling us that the market recalibrated the the length at which policy is going to stay restrictive, this this higher for longer backdrop. Uh, Interestingly, on the right-hand side, you can see that that last year, a lot of the moves in yields were driven by the short end, particularly when the Fed and other central banks were trying to quickly tighten policy because inflation had hit multi-decade highs. Then we sort of, towards the end of last year and early this year, hit a sort of period of stability and now the the front end is actually pretty well pegged and most of the volatility is happening in the long end and that's linked to what i said just earlier around this recalibration of rate cut expectations it's moving to this higher for longer scenario but you know having said all of that if we move to the next slide look i don't think you can ignore what is happening on the fiscal side um you know there is a lot of supply coming to the market um as i said the fed is actively looking to reduce the size of their treasury holdings the fed owns about a third of the treasury market it's essentially just under a 30 trillion dollar market it's huge it's the biggest bond market in the world so the the bond market particularly the long end and the ultra long end has started to reprice what we call term premium. term premium is essentially what investors demand to hold long dated bonds relative to more the the premium that they demand to hold long dated bonds relative to short dated bonds so term premium for the first time in a long time has started to tick up so you can see on this chart that term premium has actually been on a 40-year secular decline it all sort of started when volcker basically back in the 70s 80s re-established or re-anchored inflation expectations then going into to the year 2000, the Bank of Japan introduced quantitative easing. And then after the global financial crisis, pretty much every central bank, Fed included, started doing quantitative easing and that suppressed term premia. Now we have a situation where term premia is starting to move sharply up. It doesn't look like it's really hit a significant level, but it's more the speed of this move that is quite concerning. And this is linked to the fact that the deficit's expanding, there's more supply coming to the market. I'd say institutional investors are already long, high-quality bonds, so their propensity to continue to add is maybe a little bit limited. And there is a lot of headlines that foreign investors are reducing their Treasury position, specifically China and Japan. We don't see evidence of that in the data. We think it's more related to um, domestic investors and their current positioning. But having said all of that, we think there There is still essentially uh, a put in the market. So what I mean by that is, there, you know, there are consequences when you start to see the size of these moves in a very short period of time. There are negative feedback loops into the global financial system. I can't stress enough how important US treasuries are to the global financial system as a source of collateral. Uh, it essentially underpins a lot of interbank lending, repo financing, a lot of trading activity. Due to regulation, a lot of banks hold it as high quality liquid assets. So when you get such sharp moves, there are negative feedback loops into other risk assets. And I think the central banks are well aware of that. They don't want things to become uncontrolled. They do have a financial stability mandate. I think the Bank of England gave us a real hint last year when the government at the time attempted to do some unfunded tax cuts. And... And the gilt market basically broke. And despite the fact that the Bank of England was hiking rates, they reintroduced quantitative easing to stabilise the long end of the curve. Now, we're not forecasting this to happen in the Treasury market. But, of course, if things become uncontrolled, if you start to see liquidity coming out of the Treasury market, we do believe that the Fed is going to have to step in to stabilise the situation, given the importance of the Treasury market for overall global uh, market functioning. All right. Thanks,
0: Fred. I'm, I'm going to try to uh, summarize that because that was a lot of information. But, uh, you know, bond vigilantes, are people afraid that the U.S. is suddenly going to default and that China and Japan are going to dump all their treasuries? Is that what's going on here? We don't see the evidence of that. Why do we say that? Because credit default swaps on the United States, that the Insurance that the uh, U.S. is going to default hasn't really risen here. Um, you know, is this all about like, oh, inflation's going to spiral to the sky? Probably not. More recently, inflation expectations have been relatively steady. Uh, and then the point that Fred was just making is like, <laughs> yes, there is more supply out there. And uh, with quantitative tightening, you know, the Fed is less of a marginal buyer, but were there to be some kind of disruption that, you know, they'll put a cap on that because they can go back and start to be a buyer. And so when you when you game through all of these things, I think something Fred said to me recently that made a lot of sense was, you know, uh, with cash paying 5% or so, if you're going to go and earn less for that for 30 years, you really got to believe that uh, somebody that we're going to go into a recession pretty soon to make that trade worthwhile. And at the margin, with the strength of the U.S. economy, fewer people, you know, people who maybe were willing to make that bet backed off. And then we've seen the longer end uh, move up. But You know, in that play of the curve, which Fred is studying all the time and we're studying all the time, I think it does yield some more insights on how to invest around this. So maybe Nadia, maybe you can enlighten us a little bit.
3: Thanks, Mark. Um, Absolutely. You know, of course, we've seen this rapid rise in bond yields that both you and Fred have talked about. And over the last several weeks, that has put some pressure on equity markets valuation and really increase some in volatility within the market. Uh, we've seen the S and P 500 pull back, despite the fact that we've seen improvement in earnings outlook and the market is now down nearly six percent off of its year-to-date high that we saw back in July. But as Fred noted, uh, we don't think that these high bond yields are sustainable, so that headwind should start to abate. Uh, within equities, we do think that the risk reward has improved. Um, you know, interests attention.
0: Sorry, your but of- you're, you're cutting out. You, we we lost you there for a second. So maybe just starting to talk about risk a- or assets again.
3: Yes, of course. You know uh, what I was saying was that the uh, you know investors' attentions are now shifting uh, into the micro. We we're in the process um, of the U.S. earnings season uh, underway, and so that should be a key driver of performance over the next few weeks. Um, We think that the third quarter mark, uh, which is important here, will really mark that inflection point and a start of an earnings recovery for the S&P 500. You know, we've had, as you can see there in the chart, we have had three consecutive quarters of year over year decline. And so we essentially think that this earnings recession is now behind us. And so the bottom of um, uh, uh, consensus expectations is really expecting roughly flat earnings for the quarter. But we think that companies will be, and we're already starting to see that at the start of the earnings season. So we're looking for earnings growth for the quarter for three to 4%. And what's supporting that improvement earnings outlook, which both of you have alluded to, is really a strong and resilient U.S. economy and consumer. Economic growth for the third quarter seems to have accelerated. We have real GDP for the third quarter really pacing above trend at over 3%, and that's being driven by consumption. I mean, even this morning, Mark, um, retail sales in the U.S. came in better than expected, and the prior months were revised up. So the consumer continues to spend. And so all of that should really help um, uh, uh, earnings going forward, so we think that that we will see some uh, upside earnings surprises, uh, particularly from the more economically sensitive areas of the market, um, which have lagged this year. The other portion of the earnings rebound is really th- what what's being driven by those stocks, as the media has dubbed them, the magnificent magnificent seven. Um, those seven mega cap tech companies that have really outperformed year-to-date, many of those are connected to the disruptive technologies, so artificial intelligence. Um, those companies are really expected to see strong profit growth of over 30 percent um, this quarter. So, so Mark, my, my point is we have been advocating this barbell strategy, really supporting some of the laggers in the market and coupling that with some of the secular winners. Um, and so we think that the earnings um, season will be a catalyst for that with the earnings recovery and upgrade, performance could really broaden out to some of the, the more value sectors of the market, which tend to be more economically sensitive. Um, energy, uh, Mark, which you mentioned earlier, is one of our most preferred sectors globally. And this sector is seeing earnings upgrade with high oil prices. Uh, and I know Dominic will go into it a bit more, but we do expect Brent Oil will reclaim that $95 by the end of the year and really sustain that into 2024. Um, but now, while energy has outperformed, um, since we upgraded it in the U.S. Um, three months ago, um, back in, in June, just over three months ago, it has lagged the commodity and the market year to date. And so we think that there's a little bit more left in the tank. Um, Mark, in energy, and so we expect that performance gap to really close. Now, shifting um, gears to the other side of that barbell strategy that we've been talking about and balancing that out is really tech. You know, we're now neutral on the sector. But as you know, a neutral stance really means having an inline allocation to the sectors. So it does not mean not having no exposure to the sector versus the benchmark. So we think that there are still select opportunities within um, tech, particularly among some of the leading disruptors. You know, of course, uh, your rise in bond yields have challenged tech's uh, high premium valuation recently, and some of the stocks have pulled in, but we think that this provides an opportunity. Um, We do think that this is balanced out by strong fundamentals earnings growth. Uh, The difference this year, Mark, with the sector versus last year, when tech face both um, rising um, bond yields and um, a weak growth. Uh, In contrast this year, we're looking for next year, mid-teens earnings growth within the sector. And so that should be supportive to the sector. But our basket of global tech disruptors, as you can see there in the chart, which includes select software, semiconductors and internet companies, we do expect outsized earnings growth from that. So we expect that to eclipse over 20% plus EPS over the next year. And I would say many of these companies, Mark, particularly in software, have more durable earnings um, due to their subscription models that will really drive more stable, reoccurring revenue. And on top of that, you have the AI application and implementation. So we continue to believe that AI is a longer-term opportunity. We think that this market could be a $300 billion plus market within the next five years, at, but most of that growth is likely to come from the AI applications and, uh, and uh, models. So Mark, to put a pin in it, uh, we are taking a balanced approach to equities uh, with both exposure to some of the areas of the market that have lagged this year. Uh, we think those will catch up and then couple that with um, some of the secular leaders that are at the forefront of innovation And so we think that all of this will help support the S&P 500 and really lift it to 4,700 by the end of next year. So that's roughly an 8% upside from current level. That's better than sitting in cash You know, longer term. We know that cash uh, will likely return less, especially as the Fed starts cutting next year and short-term rates um, fall. So that's our balanced view right now on equity, Mark, and I'll pass it back over to you.
0: All right. Thank you, Nadia, and uh, you really hyped up Dominic with the uh, FX and commodities, so we better go over to uh, that and the, the recent changes and how you're seeing things, uh, things, Dominic.
4: Thank you, Mart. Let me start first with the FX side. Um, we're now looking for a dollar that stays well bit into year-end, potentially a bit longer in the early part of 2024, and then we look into a little bit more on the commodities. I would say overall price actions, reaction quite measured but obviously a little bit more action happening when it comes to gold and oil and we're going to touch base on this one maybe just talking first about the dollar what has changed for us I mean obviously yields higher for longer that's obviously highly supportive of the greenback and I think it's not the short end of the curve as I think Fred was highlighting but it's really the longer end which has gone up quite a fair bit and you see that very nicely if you look at For example, the dollar, the carry on a trade-weighted basis versus the DXY, and that's the chart I have in front of you. For you here, the blue one has really shot up quite sharply and I think that gives obviously underlying support. You might argue Dominic well it comes with a lot of fiscal deficit and twin deficit but I think at this point in time nobody cares about these longer term negatives and even if the dollar is richly valued at this point in time yield still dominates because it does come actually also with that relative good story and I think there's no better way to look at consensus estimate how they have moved and I took here this the chart on the right side I took the US less the rest of the world you know their estimates how they've evolved throughout 2023 for this year and clearly see everything has shifted higher so we have that very supportive carry to uh, growth outlook at least near term that gives the dollar fairly bit, I mean, what does it mean actually in terms of some of the exchange rates? And we could obviously see your dollar heading to 1.023, for example, Um, or we could even think about the the cable going to 1.19. So these are some of the levels that we could envision given uh, some of the favorable backdrop that we have in the world economy and US exceptionalism really driving uh, the dollar at this point in time. What can you do as an investor? Well, if you go maybe next slide, I mean, first of all, keep the dollars. I mean, definitely a currency you want to keep, given all the uncertainty and given the carry and the growth narrative I just highlighted. But then I think the alternative, if you're quite worried about what's happening geopolitically and politically, and you think about Uh, Is there another safe haven around? I mean, the Swiss franc can do the job and actually has done so. We have seen obviously the Swissy being well bid in the crosses, and particularly so. That's a currency to look out for, but truly only when you think about um, at this point in time, a very negative outlook. Otherwise, base case, you're probably still going to have negative total return because you have no yield. And I think that's still going to eat into performance. The last point, which I highlight, and I think that's quite close to me, is um, if you have dollars and you think about how can I get a little bit additional returns, or if you have euros, how can I benefit from our view that we have out there? I still think wall selling is a good strategy. Uh, now, vol is not particularly super high, but it's also not low. Uh, so, you look at the chart here on the left side. You see, compared to where we prior to uh, basically the pandemic, we're definitely higher, but we clearly not as high as we have seen in the past. But I think vol selling still is something to do to beef up your money market return. Thinking about two to three hundred basis points, it's something that is on my mind. So, which currency to choose if you're a dollar? euro or pound investor i will look for things like the knock which is cheap i would think about the aussie or even the japanese yen where maybe the BOJ doesn't move in in october so there are opportunities to tap into the fx market and and benefit from our view and add some additional performance to your uh, money market what about the the commodity landscape switching gears here a little bit um overall commodities actually positive since the the attack from from Hamas on, on Israel. So I think that's one thing to highlight, but obviously most noticeable we have seen gold rallying quite a fair bit. I just want to have an element of caution here. I mean, historically risk premiums, uh, geopolitical in nature, do not tend to be lasting. And I think the starting point for gold was that real rates are elevated, opportunity costs are high, and I wanted to show here on the right, right-hand side some of the investment flows. Look, if, if ETF don't join the bandwagon on that rally, it's very hard for gold to continue that trajectory. That doesn't mean you need to you know, exit all your gold. That's not the idea. I just want to say that once the risk premium is priced in, forward-looking return look a little bit more compressed. And right now, if you look at June, our forecast, 1,950, and basically uh, – Forwards above it really tell you there's not much left to go. Uh, Clearly, it worked as a safe haven asset, but beyond here, I wouldn't chase that that metal at this point in time and looking more for risks for a pullback. The narrative looks different. The story on on the oil side, I mean, starting point is different. I mean, we do have the market that is still undersupplied. thinking about close to 2 million barrels per day, starting number one, demand is still robust, although you can argue that growth momentum is topping out. And if you truly see some increased sanction on Iran, you see potential production being affected. I mean, it produces 3.1 million barrels, exports around 1.5, we don't know exactly. If, if here, supply availability would obviously tighten up, there's definitely room to see that $100 Uh, per barrel. The only thing I also like to say here, to be a little bit more nuanced, if you look at the chart on the right side, which is basically OPEC's production profile, well, Saudis can still increase production. uh, So there is the capability to step in and stabilize the price. But I do think if things would go into a different and very difficult direction, prices can quickly go towards 100. And most importantly, and I think that's the story for oil, even if we do not move, if things you know, prices just stay unchanged. Oil pays to wait. We have roll gains of probably more than a percent on a monthly basis. So that's obviously quite of a different backdrop where you get something for, you know, staying in there. Whereas when it comes to gold, you basically have opportunity costs at around 5%. So really focus on the old side. I think that's where you can get some protection in your portfolio to stabilize your overall portfolio when it comes to your investments. Mark, back to you.
0: Well, thank you. And uh, we are out of time, but we did get one question that I wanted to quickly cover. I'll just do it quickly myself rather than try to give a uh, statesman-like conclusion to this live stream, Uh, if there's a recession happening and equity markets are down 10 to 15 percent, would you consider 30-year treasuries as a wise hedge? I think the answer to that would be yes, Uh, but where we prefer to be invested, given our outlook, uh, as as Fred could say better than me, is from the five to 10-year range, which is where the yields have been a little more stable despite some of these recent uh, changes. That might be a ro- more robust way to add some balance to your portfolio and still get paid over a wider range of outcomes uh, than the hard landing that that was in the question. So uh, look, we are beyond time. Thank you for being with us. It is our honor and privilege to be with you uh, during these geopolitical times and at all times. Uh, and uh,